Hello, everyone. Before we get our episode started today, there's two things we wanted our listeners to know. First, when we originally recorded this episode, it was literally the week before Jackie Shane had passed away, and that's why we referred to her in the present tense throughout the episode. More importantly, during our original recording, there were a couple of times we misgendered her pronouns in talking about Jackie during different phases of her life and career. Some of you raised those concerns around that, and we hear you. We should have done better, and we didn't and we apologize for not having been more proactive about it. In the future, we will try to do better. Thanks to all of you who raised this concern to our attention. And now, on to the episode. Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, you know, fire combustibles, an album that bumps eternally. And today, we will be deep diving together into the abyss, into any other way, the 2017 anthology by R&B rock and roll cult legend, Jackie Shane. Jackie Shane said, quote, At five years old, I would dress in a dress, hat, purse, and high heels and go up and down the block and enjoy it. End quote. Imagine that. Imagine the early formative years of a transgendered woman in 1946. Imagine spending those early transformative years in the Jim Crow Deep South in 1946. Imagine being black and trans and spending your early formative years in the Jim Crow Deep South in 1946. While that's only part of the story of Jackie Shane, it provides biographical context for a fearless, focused, fabulous woman whose own great migration away from the strongholds of racism and poverty to the uncertainty of a new band and new country gave us a career so rich that archivists at the Numero Group had the foresight to gather and preserve a highlight reel, 25 tracks released in the fall of 2017 called Any Other Way. Regal on the cover art, real on the tracks, Jackie Shane bodied classics like Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and high-heeled sneakers, and originals like In My Tenement. She sang with the fire and conviction that you'd expect from a church girl who'd been some places, seen some things. She moved up and down notes and scales and time across the album, along the way blessing us with clapbacks and receipts aplenty. She rocked and rolled us, baby. She presented confidence, more than a black girl was supposed to have, given the times. And then she disappeared, stepping out of the limelight and into a familial call of duty. Imagine that. Imagine Jackie Shane having the keys to the kingdom and handing them back. Imagine Jackie Shane choosing relative obscurity in her 30s. Imagine Jackie Shane being pursued by a label, agreeing to resurface and release, and her getting her first Grammy nomination in her 70s. And then, imagine her in the stillness of the dawn, stepping into eternity, with an intact legacy, a life well done, and a trail blazed for rainbow-colored girls who considered resplendence when being average wasn't enough. I imagine Jackie Shane the transparent, translucent Jackie Shane wouldn't have wanted it any other way. I know you're out there tired. Gotta teach you tonight. 
Any Other Way was the album pick of our guest today, Nick Waterhouse. The Southern California native is a veritable manifestation of the idea of a young old soul. In his music that now spans four studio albums, he takes his listeners on a trip from Los Angeles back to Chicago, Detroit, Memphis, New Orleans, Nashville, and other cities that help shape the rock and the roll, the rhythm and the blues. Nick's latest album comes out this very week, and it's named Nick Waterhouse. Nick, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. The Jackie Shane rediscovery period has been building for really the past decade, first in Canada and then most recently, it certainly crested here in the United States, partially thanks to that numeral group compilation. And certainly, though, even beyond that, she's had fans for decades. And we were just talking before we started taping today that you are not by any means a latecomer to the Jackie Shane mystique and mythology you have been on her for years now. How was you, how were you first introduced to yeah, her? In, in, not, in, not at all. Yeah. What was where? Where did your fascination begin? I chose Jackie. This was like a very interesting task to get on the show because I'm actually not a huge LP person. I'm a mm. 45 guy. Right. I feel and, that. And uh, you know, I think that's reflected in my work. And what's really funny is the premise of like me discovering soul and R and B and rock and roll when I was a teenager was understanding that the format inherently like by the creators was 45s it wasn't lps really and jackie is such a part of my own development like she was present from the time that i was getting really into it and all her 45s were the things that were influencing where i was going to go this is almost like my own growth it's like a map of me growing up in southern california then moving to the bay area and working in a record shop and then you know being exposed song by song, the very first song that I heard was probably uh, Stand Up Straight and Tall. I was working at the Virgin Megastore in Costa Mesa as a teenager. Salute. And buying the import comps from Kent and Ace, which is like, predating Numero, probably the the greatest reissue label. Right. And it it was this thing where I was like, you know, this track is fire, but I don't know anything about this person, and there was nothing in the liners about it. Right. But hearing like an idiosyncratic and really sort of like almost like grief-driven delivery was something different than hearing James Brown or Smokey Robinson, Um, and it had to do with the personality more than just the concept, you know? Yeah. And Morgan, I mean, you have you mentioned Jackie Shane to me a while back. So what was your introduction to her? Uh, my introduction was in preparation for Selma. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to use, um, as you well know, we wanted to stay true to the year, which was 1965. Uh, but Ava wanted to use B-sides and stuff that you know people wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. No one would have expected Jackie Shane. And I came to Jackie Shane just going through like a wide range of things coming out at that time. Yeah. Um, I saw the video for Walking the Dog, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just walk the dog. If you don't know how to do it, show you how to walk the 
first of all, it was grainy. So I couldn't tell at first looking at it, you know, if this was a woman or a man, which mm-hmm. was which was part of the excitement. And so then I was like, it was just a moment. I, I hate music snobs and I hate people that like, oh, I heard of this a long time ago. Where you been? <laughs> but as soon as I found that, I became that snob. I was like, oh, where you been? You ain't heard of Jackie Shane. Yeah. It was a revelation, right? <laughs> and then the rumor was that she was the cousin of Little Richard at the time. Right, right. So fast forward to after seeing that video, I go into a donut shop and I see this brother that I always see all the time. And he's talking about he wants to do documentaries and stuff. And he's like, wait, I know you probably haven't heard of this. Have you heard of Jackie Shane? And it wasn't one of my finer moments. I was like, where you been? I've been, <laughs> I've been on Jackie Shane. I've been on Jackie Shane. So we had this whole conversation about Jackie Shane. But that was my... My education, walking the dog, and that grainy video. So if you're listening, you can catch that on YouTube. And that, for me, was a revelation. I'm pretty sure I learned about Jackie through you because the whole she's the cousin of Little Richard, I want to say, is something that I had heard through you. And, of course, it was a rumor that had been passed around, which, just to be clear, not true at all. Right. Though it's, it's, I guess, easy to understand in hindsight how that would have developed partially because she seems so idiosyncratic in a way that little Richard was idiosyncratic yeah. and it would have made a very neat story if that were actually the case. Sure. Even if it's not. But I think that the ways in which completely invented mythologies like that attach themselves to someone like Jackie says a lot about how in the absence of information, when you have these artists who disappear off the proverbial map for so many decades, within that vacuum, people fill it with all kinds of theories and ideas that just latch on because there's nothing to contradict it in, again, within that vacuum of, of information. Right. Mm. Right. Um, so talk about your initial impressions. Cause we ask this sometimes, mm. was it love at first listen? And if it was, what was the song that did it for you? It was love at first listen on the second song. So the first song I heard was as a teenager where it was part of this group of sort of obscure compiled, R&B 45s. But when the second one came around, it was hearing Any Other Way. Mm. Title track. But when you see my baby Here's what you say Tell her I wouldn't have it Any other way At that same time, I was being exposed to it in a new environment, which is, it's so tied to my development, moving to San Francisco and working at Rookie Ricardo's in Lower Haight, which... Shout out to the Lower Haight record stores in San Francisco. And Dick Vivian, the proprietor, who is and has been a part of the gay community there for a long time, he had a lot of like queer customers and trans customers, and part of like Jackie's persona was so fascinating to him was knowing that you know dick was the guy who not only loved you know rhythm and blues and and the music that he was the kid who was going to all the dances in vallejo in 1963 Mm. um but that video of walking the dog was one of my first youtube experiences and it was showing dick who is 45 years older than me this footage and all of us gathering around i remember Mm. at a friend's house to watch this and trying to make out this grainy performance. And, you know, Dick played me any other way because he knew I loved William Bell so much. And so this is like a songwriter, producer, 
um, style. Like it was on Sue Records, which I loved all the Juggy Murray produced stuff. And it had this like New York thing. But it was almost like there was such a deep, strange, like otherness to his delivery. And when I heard that, it just slayed me. Like it knocked me out. And the production was so strange and like late night feeling. And after that, I was in all the way. And you say that you're my friend. That's cute, right? <laughs> Comes in right on time. I remember when I heard that, I was like, I see you, Jackie. Yeah, yeah, I see you. Yeah. I see you. And that performance that we're talking about, the grainy video, one of the things that stays with me is just Jackie's presence. So sure and so confident in a time where the word transgender hadn't even been invented. I mean, gay even didn't really mean, exactly. in the mainstream, it certainly didn't mean what we assume it means now. Right. So I think partly Jackie could get away with saying that line in a way that we now, I think in the present, can go back and hear it as code. Yeah. But at the time, people were just like, oh, you know, he's using synonyms for the two words we're having. Exactly. Gay, right? it, it, joyful, yeah, right, you know. Right. Um, and just the confidence, the confidence of knowing. And talk about intersectionality. You mm-hmm. are black and transgender in the fifties and sixties, in a time where any one of those things could get you caught up. Right. And here you are boldly doing this. And the implication, at least for me, what watching the video is is the the band knows and the band is cool. Sure. I think what's really interesting is um, like uh, Preston Lauterbach's book about the Chitlin Circuit. It yeah. talks about how early on gender bending was sort of, it was a carryover from vaudeville. And that's like what Askew Reader and Little Richard and some other like cabaret acts were doing. And there was still this thing where it seems like inherently you were living in a truly excluded environment. So, you know, people would be cool with you no matter what in sure. this world. Sure. Different from Billy Tipton. Sure. <laughs> who was actually living uh, as a man and people didn't know until, yes. until the end. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's, to me, Jackie's coming out of that world. And and when Absolutely. The, the few, so when I finally had my first album out and I was on tour, the first thing that happened when I went to Toronto and did press when I was at the CBC is I'm like, has any of you ever heard anything about Jackie Shane? <laughs> what year was this? This was 2011. Yeah, okay. So right after the documentary yes. had come through. Come and out. so... Um, the show producer was blown away because I was like a 25 year old who should be promoting my record. And I'm just asking him about <laughs> Jackie. <Shane>. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he gave it to me. He played it for me. And, um, you know, the thing that I was struck by is that um, this crisscrossing through North America uh, that has to do with kind of the the subculture that predates counterculture, which is really to me what the Chitlin Circuit and rhythm and blues and rock and roll and all this was, which is. It was illegal to be a black person in America, so you lived in a separate society that had its own codes and venues, and you were trying to find a home, which I also saw a lot in the queer community in San Francisco that I was around. And uh, once somebody said to me that San Francisco is a place where a bunch of people are seeking shelter because they weren't given a home where they were. Mm. And it seems like Jackie was finding that in Toronto. You know, Toronto at the time had this sort of like, intersectionality of the like hippie the gay scene and there's even in the liner notes they talk about how fans of Jackie started showing up that were also trans people 
that were trying to dress like the star of the show and line up outside and, you know, sort of peacock. And I love, like, that that nightlife world is exactly the thing that always got me into music and the creation of music and the culture around music, besides the music itself. Yeah. I think in, and I forget what, if this was an interview that Jackie gave to Elaine Blank at the Canadian Broadcasting Company. It's unclear if the interview was done in 2010, but not aired in 2019, or maybe it was done much more recently. But in any case, one of the things that Jackie talks about is how um, the reason why she moved to Toronto was pr- primarily to get out of the American South. And mm. To your point, Nick. Mm. I also wanted to say, too, you know, I can't think of any R&B artists of the 1960s that I knew were from Canada. And because I, not, I was not well studied on Jackie's story, I didn't realize that her band was um, Frank Motley. And, and back then it was Frank Motley mm-hmm. and the Motley Crew, Crew which yeah. later became Frank Motley and the Hitchhikers, which was a group I did know out of Canada. But not because of their 60s R&B stuff, but because they were one of the few Canadian funk bands by the 1970s with a song that I was probably introduced to at the Groove Merchant, which is down the block from Ricky Ricardo's in the Lower Haight, which is uh, their version of Eddie Bowe's Hook and Sling. I can't think of any other Canadian R&B artist of the 60s, so Jackie seemed to be very singular in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, At some point during the live album, Jackie starts talking to the audience, and she talks about Young Street, and she talks about walking down the street and people whispering and pointing and looking at her. Money. Money. It's on the live version of Money. Let me tell these people about this money thing. You know... When I'm walking down Young Street, you won't believe this, but you know some of them funny people have the nerve to point the finger at me and grin and smile and whisper. But you know that don't worry, Jackie, because I know I look good. And every Monday morning I laugh and grin on my way to the bank because I got mine. I look good, I got money, and everything else that I need. You know what my slogan is, baby? Do what you want. Just know what you're doing. As long as you don't force your will and your way on anybody else, live your life because ain't nobody sanctified and holy. You see what I mean? As is well documented. There should just be a segment on Heat Rocks where I talk about my church upbringing. Let's write that in. Uh, (laughs) But I have to jump in uh, and say that I grew up in the church. Um, but I grew up around what we call church queens. And they they didn't have the luxury that I think Jackie Shane had, which was to live openly. What this mantra reminds me of is that she was comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, we're not all sanctified out here. Mm-hmm. And I was so encouraged by that mantra, but also saddened because it was the luxury that Little Richard didn't have. Mm-hmm. And Little Richard is still struggling with that whole, the complexity of being an evangelical Christian and also being gay to the, to the degree that he's divorced himself from a lot of those early recordings and that he's been going on the you know the 700 club and for them to be so close but to have such divergent paths where, where it relates to sexuality I was so happy for Jackie in that moment but also so discouraged because at the same time you've got little Richard who's got to change all the lyrics to Tutti Frutti because of all that stuff and who is sort of closeted in in in, in his presentation even with the big pompadour but does not have the same freedom to say, I think, even now, about his sexuality and what was going on. And Jackie's 
Jackie Shane was not just gay. Jackie Shane, Shane was presenting as a woman in the same sort of times. So I love that she, I love what she says there is sort of like, do your thing. And I, and I love when she says, I'm laughing all the way to the bank or she's cashing this check. So it's, to me, it's just very woke and just very present for the time. I could be mistaken, though, but I think in the 60s, though, Jackie was still presenting as a man, which is why earlier when I was talking about the use of, of talking about I'm happy, I'm you know, t- tell her I'm happy, tell her I'm gay, I used the pronoun he because at that point in which Jackie sang that lyric back in the mid-60s, she was still presenting as a he, but now she presents as a she. she. From bottoms down, though, because they were saying she, she would wear slacks but also would have her makeup right. on and the short and the short little uh, what we call page boy page boy wig or page boy hairstyle right so in talking about Jackie's comments about young street if you can talk a little bit about what was going on in Toronto i mean it would be one thing i mean black folks in that time your hope was to move north mm-hmm. but by north we meant chicago and, and new york <laughs> yeah. right yeah. jackie shane ends up in toronto what was going on in the soul scene that Tor- in Toronto that made that so attractive for Jackie and the band? I think that's a really good question because the Toronto scene was almost more like a bohemian thing. Mm. It was like the West Village. Um, mm. My understanding from talking to people then was that it was folk clubs mm. and almost like it's like they were five years in the past. Uh. It was like New York in the late 50s there. So they were and but the youth culture was starting to grow their hair and then sort of the onslaught of the first draft Dodgers showing up in both Vancouver and Toronto. Oh, interesting. Sort of gave it this, like, pre-San Francisco feel. Yeah. And because Toronto was naturally more of, like, a global capital like it is now, I think it was, like, there was much more influence from migrants from everywhere outside of south of Canada. Right. Mm. We will be back with more of our conversation with Nick Waterhouse about Jackie Shane's Any Other Way after a brief word from some of our sibling Maximum Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Have you ever watched a movie so bad you just needed to talk to somebody about it? Well, here at the Flophouse, we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. Yeah, you don't have to do anything. We'll watch it and we'll talk it. We do the hard work. Featuring the beautiful vocal talents of Dan McCoy. Stuart Wellington. And me, America's Rascal, Elliot Kalin. New episodes every other Saturday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcast, dude. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back, and thank you, Dan, for that scathing report. As you know, Max Fun Drive is coming up March 18th to March 29th, which has some folks pretty excited. But as families around the world get ready to celebrate this season of giving, community, and quality podcasts, some are wondering if it's just too much. Are they, though? They are. Some people are all for comedy and culture, but with 45 shows offering hundreds of hours of bonus content, plus all the Max Fun meetups taking place around the world, some people think it's too much. While other people think it sounds totally awesome. I took my granddaughter to the mall to get her picture taken, and the mall pod fairy was short. And I, you know, I'm just going to say it. I'm sorry, but everyone knows the pod fairy is tall. Well, I think we should just leave it there. Until next time, here's the news you need to know. Max Fun Drive runs from March 18th through 29th. Be sure to listen to all of your favorite podcasts. I know I will. And we are back on Heat Rocks talking Jackie Shane's Any Other Way 
with Nick Waterhouse. A lot about the Jackie Shane story really reminds me of Betty Davis because these are both women who, when they left the music industry, they stayed gone for decades and became reclusive. Uh, Rumor replaced fact in the absence of their contributing to being staying in the public eye. And fans and journalists and record labels brought them back into the spotlight. Certainly with Betty Davis, I played a small role in that insofar as I interviewed her. I wrote the liner notes to a few of her album reissues. And so I'd sit with this kind of ambivalence about what is the cost that comes with that for artists who clearly valued their privacy for decades. And I think about this CBC interview that I had mentioned earlier that Jackie had given. And this is what she says at the end of it to interviewer Elaine Blank. I severed and saved this minute because it's a very special minute. You brought me back to the front, and you deserve to know that, no, I did not want this, but I think and I believe it was destiny. And I want to say to you, thank you, Elaine. Thank you so very much for being so very deep. What really sticks to me there is this thanking her, but also noting, you know, you brought me back, which I didn't want, but I feel like now it was destiny. And the fact that Jackie says, this is not what I wanted. And she's not saying it in a defensive way here, but she is making it clear that there's a reason why Jackie Shane was off the radar for as many decades as she was. That was an intentional choice for reasons that we may never fully know, and we don't necessarily deserve to know. And so I wonder our hunger and our desire to understand the mystery and to puncture the the mystique you know, there's a kind of entitlement I think we feel towards these artists because we love their music. We feel entitled to know more about their backstories. And are we intruding on them in the process? And they may benefit in particular ways from this spotlighting returning on them. But I also do think about what the cost of that is. I share a little bit of that ambivalence. But first, I want to say that if it wasn't for some of this music journalism and certainly investigative music journalism and people going back to find artists, perhaps a new generation would not know about Betty Davis and they would not know about Jackie Shane. So to, to a certain part, Very true. I think that you're doing a service on behalf of this new generation that has questions. We know that this generation knows about Otis Redding and Sam Cooke, but there are all these stories of these artists that are on the fringes that I think need to be bought back. So to the one end, I think that you're doing a service. As a music supervisor, the most fun for me is breaking new artists, but the challenge also is in breaking old artists. Mm. And certainly that was my feeling going into Selma, that in looking for the B-sides of 1965, perhaps this is a chance to dig out some people who for who either would appreciate either the shout or the compensation of having their music featured. So, yeah, in some ways I feel a little guilty too because maybe they don't want, want to be found, maybe they don't, they don't want their story told, but I always assume that if they're not getting the publishing, then maybe the shout, maybe someone knowing about mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. Um, is good enough. And I do feel like for the purposes of education, 
people should know the Jackie Shane story because there are people that are that are taking for granted the fact that they can be who they are. And fierce is not right. how you're made up. Right. It's what you're made of. And she had a great constitution in that time, the bravery to go out and do that in a time where there was such a price to be paid for professionally and otherwise. And so I think it's important to have these stories and people that rescue her. Shout out to Numero or Doug McGowan for going to, you know, dig up all this stuff so that kids can know that before you were doing it, before you were walking down Santa Monica Boulevard, somebody was walking down Young Street and doing, mm. doing all this stuff. Mm. So salute to you for sort of helping to tell the story of Betty Davis. I still don't know why she went away. Even when we came out of that documentary, I didn't have a sense of what really happened, and I still want to know that. And maybe that's not my business, but I'm so and we curious. All want, and see, we want to know. And I so our know. curiosity becomes, that's my point earlier, our curiosity becomes invasive on something where the mystique and the mystery is partly why we're so curious, but there's a reason why this stuff isn't known. And at least in Betty's case, I'm, I'm not going to speak for Jackie. In Betty's case, it's because very deliberately she doesn't want to talk about sure. it. So, but, yeah. but, but you being in the documentary, you're a DJ, you're a scholar, you're a collector. So I respect your, I respect your relationship to the music. But when I was watching the documentary and, then, and her face wasn't shown, then I felt like, well, okay, is there a part of this story? Was she, was she really a willing participant? Because why won't she talk to us? Right, right. Maybe that's salacious information that I want that's not my business. But I got to confess, I, I want to know what, right. what is the tea? Right. What's going on, Betty? <laughs> Where you at? <laughs> Come right. on, Betty. Do you so think that. that that has to do with the relationship uh, between a media consumer now and maybe somebody who's engaging with art through time? Say more. To treat these people as content or entertainment is paramount to what was going on uh, at the time. You know, a lot of this was a commercially um, churned out good, even though there was a ton of artistry going into it. Right. So I think the context, especially with people dipping out of working anymore, choosing to sit out after a series of bad experiences or discrimination, you know, it's having your things released in 2019 as somebody that is, uh, again, speaking about the power of otherness, yeah, it's different than in 1967, right? Right. And even if Jackie was incredibly strong, um, she could have given that speech and walked home and, and been assailed 10 more times that night, and maybe sure. that was the reason to stop. Yeah. I think that that's actually just part of the dialogue of how we're going to have to engage with this music. I had the opportunity to back Irma Thomas last year, mm. and um, I've worked with several older artists and 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 I've tried to be incredibly respectful of of how they engage with their memories of the work even if we hold it incredibly dear. Right. Dick Vivian, again owner of Rookie Ricardos, he worked at Macy's for the Christmas shift 1967-89 in Vallejo. Mm. Irma Thomas was working the Christmas shift at Macy's while she was cutting some of those imperial sides. Wow. Does that speak to the greatness of those tracks that we all know? And I remember asking her, I was like you were in L.A. in 66 and 7. I think you were doing this. And, and Irma had nothing but bad memories about that time. Right. So when she's doing Time is on My Side, she's probably not engaging with it the same way that we are now. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's, as the fan and, and the person consuming the art, if you're not treating it with respect, then um, you need to find another way to engage. Right. We have Jimmy Butler on the drums. And this week, ladies and gentlemen, we have with us also King Herbert on tenor saxophone. We also have Curly Dorgan. Yours truly, Frank Motley. It's just about that time for the star of our review, ladies and gentlemen. 
Little Jackie Shane, what do you say, Little Jackie Shane? Let's bring it back to Jackie. Okay. Bring it back to the music in particular. And All right, I, want to, bring it back. I want to bring attention to the fact that this, the, the numeral comp that we're talking about, Disc One compiles Jackie's singles that were released, studio tracks, and then Disc Two is a, basically a reissue of the 1967 live album. And Nick, I'm especially curious from you as a performing artist, as a recording artist, do you listen to the the songs in these in the same way, or is the fact that one of them is a live recording, does it change your listening approach to it in terms of what it is that you're listening for? Absolutely. And that's also why I picked the record. Yeah. Because I'm an insane person who spent $80 on a reissue of the live LP, because there were bootlegs going around of this in the late 90s. And once I got, once Blood was in the water with the 45s, I was like, <laughs> the only Jackie Shane LP is this. I got to find it. It took me a couple years. When I listen to it, this is extremely my thing because it's a working R&B nightclub band pre-funk. So what you're hearing is the Motley band doing just what would be an average night on any main drag in any metropolitan city, Yeah. but with Jackie in front of it. So it's all about the arrangements, and it's all about the material selected, too, because you... I mean, yeah, I grew up in Southern California. Like, the prevalent music when I was a kid in Huntington Beach, Santa Ana, Anaheim was punk rock music or, like, 10 people who listen to hip-hop, you know? <laughs> um, so if I was if I was interested in a rhythm and blues record, there was nobody even around to explain to me, like, listen, there were these artists and they would do covers all night of what was the top 40. So what was big in 1965? So they're doing high heel sneakers, they're doing yeah. money, but then they're doing some, they have four or five originals peppered in. And there was this thing that was so cool for me to experience when I was going through discovering people like Gene Chandler or uh or you know any any artist that would perform at the Regal. Why are they all doing My Girl on their live record in 1966? Like isn't everybody tired of this song? Right. No, that's that's what it is. <laughs> um and that's what this is. And this is like a really cooking band in a small nightclub. Yeah. It, it's it's cool. It's just like this and the Mose Allison live record from 65 are like my mm. two favorite live albums. And they have the same feel, which is a working band, not a massive artist. And I think what what I miss in live albums um, now is that when you hear, you don't hear the interaction between the singer and the band as much. That's not as popular now. Mm -hmm. You hear the band riff on, you hear that whole instrumental, you hear an introduction of the band. But what I like about this album is you get a relationship between Jackie and the band. Her comments, their comments, mm -hmm. her banter in between, her mm -hmm. personal, her mantra, as I mentioned. Yeah. And that, that to me made this album really special in listening back to it. The contemporary equivalent? Turn my turn my mic up. Turn my headphones up. That's that's what we get. We get we get artists and the engineer, and that's the banter that we get. Can I get more levels? Yeah, exactly. Turn me up. So Nick, off of this album, off of this double album, this compilation, <laughs> what is your fire track? If you had to limit it to one, coming down. It's coming down. So I am a DJ, like a, a nightclub DJ. You know, I don't. It's a funny thing to try to explain, but especially the time that I lived in the Bay, there was a flourishing nightlife where it was a bunch of younger people who weren't just record heads yeah that would go out and go dancing and it'd be amazing to have 300 people dancing to not just motown chart busters right and 
part of the um, trajectory of my career was that my breakout was making a 45 and a bunch of DJs all over the world buying it and starting to play it. And coming down by Jackie Shane, wherever I am, if I'm in Belgium, if I'm in London, if I'm in Melbourne and Australia, the secret code is to play that song. You know that that person is like really in the know if they drop coming down. And it's just, it makes people go nuts because it has that thing that feels familiar to strangers. Like it feels like it should have been a top 10 hit. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like really savage. Like it's a great arrangement and Jackie just floats through the whole thing. In church, we call that type of singing, we call we call that person a verified witness. And in coming down to me, Jackie sounds like a verified witness. Mm. That describing heartache in that voice and that perspective with that band behind it, as we know Jackie's story, we can't imagine what type of heartache or what type of relationship we might have been talking about. But she sounds on that song, like what we call in the church, a verified witness. And that was going to be my uh, my fire track. Thank you, Nick, for uh, trumping me on this pick. <laughs> but I'm not mad. And now that I, now I know that uh, you sound like you're in the know if you drop that uh, you know, in a set. I'm going to have to drop one of that in so I can seem like I'm in the know. It's a secret handshake. Okay, I feel yeah. you. Thank you for letting me in on that, uh, that inside, insider trading. So I think that's a great song. Absolutely. My fire track, though, and this is my weakness for cover songs, it is Jackie's cover of Barrett Strong's Money, Ooh-wee. which I think was the first single that Jackie put out, mm-hmm. right? The best things in life are free. You can give them to the birds. The two things amongst two many things that I love about this is, number one, it doesn't try to sound like the Barrett Strong original. I mean, you obviously know it's a cover of it, but it's not aping the the original, I guess that was on Tamla, um, production behind Strong's hit, which came out a couple years before that. And the second thing is, that opening, the opening piano chord sounds exactly like the beginning of Blister in the Sun by the Violent Femmes, which just <laughs> kind of tripped me out because I'm thinking, like, did the Violent Femmes get it from, from Jackie? Probably not. It's probably just a coincidence. Like, there's only so many chord progressions to go around. Can I speak to something, too, listening to that? Of and course. I wanted to bring this up earlier. The, and I say this with all respect, the almost amateurish... Um, musicianship on some of this yeah. is the same level of amateurish playing on like Bo Diddley records and stuff. Yeah, A lot of my thing in all these 45s that are tangentially related, like Sue Records and all this, is that it's not played the right way, but it is exactly right. Yes. All of these songs are done that way. It's right. like any other way, the drums are way too loud. Yeah. A recording engineer would listen to it and be like, that sounds terrible. But you know what? That's what makes that song really good. And the horns are a little pitchy. That that too. Yeah. Pitchy. But if everything is pitchy in the same pitch, then you have a real record. That's right. Yeah. All right. You had another fire track, Morgan. Stand up straight and tall. Oh, yes. That one is a heat rock. Talking about pretty women 
we haven't spent uh, enough time talking about uh, Jackie's voice. Yeah. Um, it's interesting as I in prep for this chat, I thought, gosh, I, I, I was so into walking the dog in any other way that I hadn't given given enough time to the voice and the, and the range that mm-hmm. Jackie has. Certainly the gospel squall that we hear a lot certainly can hit those high notes, certainly the power and certainly the depth. But Stand Up Straight and Tall is one of my favorites because of where she goes um, with the range of her voice and the sort of little... Uh, the inside joke uh, that while she is standing up tall, she is not standing up straight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love I love her voice on this. And to me, she sounds a little bit like another Jackie, and that's Jackie Wilson. Mm. To me, a little bit Ooh, of the, vo- yeah. the voice is similar. Yes, absolutely. There's that, yeah, it, especially on this, because this is a 45 on Modern. I feel like this session, it was Jackie maybe at her most muscular. Yeah. Um and if I was trying to place it in time, it seems like it's almost the last 45 cut. So that might be the absolute peak of, of her chops. Yeah. And she's doing all that amazing high stuff. Yes. And, and just it's like the syncopation. Again, I think it's responding to the way that music was moving in R&B at the time where she she was like, all right, now's the time where I'm going to start doing 16ths, you know? Yep. Speaking of the live album, in terms of my favorite moment off of this anthology, it comes on the live version of Money, which we had listened to a little bit earlier. And it comes around about a little bit after five minutes into it. And it is, I don't know if this is one of those verified witness moments, but it is Jackie just, the the level of braggadocio would basically put to shame you know, the average 2019 MC in terms of the levels that she reaches on this. And I got so much of my own. You know, I'm taking care of business, Tony. Everywhere I go, you know what? This is the closest to Jesus Christ some of you will ever get. You should travel with me, baby. You think Jesus Christ had come down and walked this earth again. The multitude that follows me is so great because they know I go along handing out soul blessings satisfying souls but I don't satisfy nobody that's a square you know you got to know that I need some money but we can get along you know I don't want you coming to my Jackie well I ain't never done this I ain't never done that well if you haven't get up and let somebody who can don't hinder my business you see what I mean Morgan <laughs> is this blasphemy yes <laughs> And I won't play this at the house if my, if my mother's there. But what I like about it is it sort of reminds me of some of the braggadocio that Little Richard had. Yeah. Little Richard has been saying, I'm the greatest. Yeah. At every award show, they'd always be like, I'm the king of rock and roll. I haven't received nothing. And that's what he would say all the time. So it sort of reminds me similar. But is it is it skating those waters where I might get in trouble at home? <laughs> yes, it is. So, Mom, tune out at this point in the episode because... Uh, I don't know the multitude that follows me. I love the swagger, but uh, yeah, but I, I, I'm concerned about my salvation. I'm not playing this at the house. <laughs> Do either of you have favorite moments off of this? Mine is the mantra. That was mine too, honestly. Yeah. Um, I I also it's it's uh the other thing that I noticed, and I was re-listening to all this stuff before we got on, which ties to the braggadocio and what I would consider and like probably the most 
shade if we were analyzing it by now is Jackie's constantly talking about having beautiful women around, which I see as a dig to straight, like right. regular men. Yes. Sure, right. sure, because she says I can have all the chicken and all the women I want. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it, there's an element of like being the Oscar Wilde of the Chitlin Circuit going on in all this. Sure. It's and it's and it's that same wisdom too, which is like nobody can judge anyone here. You know. That's a good headline. They someone should have used that. The Oscar Wilde of the, of the Chitlin Circuit. I was just going to say um, one of the things in prep for this chat, which I hadn't paid attention to, is when Jackie does the poem "Mary, Mary, Quite Contrary." <laughs> I was like, now this is a version that I've not heard. Mary, Mary, I can trade. Tell me, baby, how does your God grow? You've got silver bells, aqua shells, and maids all in a row. Just a walk in the dark. Early spoken word. By, uh, by, well, by and, a, and again, Mary, a coded word at the time. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. A lot of codes. Yeah. A lot of codes here. We ask our guests to describe the album they chose in three words. If you had to describe any other way in three words, what would they be? Fiery, flamboyant, and fearless. I like the alliteration yes, as well. Yes, indeed. Nicely done. <laughs> oh, come on now, baby. Come on down. Go with it. Blow it. That will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Nick Waterhouse, whose latest album is Nick Waterhouse. Side question, how does one decide to finally go with the eponymous album title? Because this is four albums deep. You could have done it as the first one, but like you wait till number four, like what, like you, you just ran out of ideas, like screw it, let's just go with my name. I think this one says the most about me. Ooh, okay. Uh, this is, I, I'll go to the fences on this one. You know what I mean? Um, I think every record before this was working like a different muscle group. Um, and the first album could have been self-titled, but I didn't even know it was going to be an album. That's mm. kind of how, it was 45, so right. that's what I was making then. So right. right. I wasn't about to just throw my own name on that one. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you, about the new album? Where, where are your, your socials and internet contacts? You know, uh, Nick Waterhouse, spelled just how it sounds on Instagram, Facebook, nickwaterhouse.com. Innovative Leisure uh, puts out my records. You should check them out. They put out a bunch of other really great artists as well. Great. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in the studios of the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where you can find people walking the dog any other way. <laughs> As always, we want to thank our five-star iTunes reviewers because their reviews is how new listeners find their way to us. Shout out to Blackbird Run, who describes our podcast as enlightening, informative, and sassy. (laughs) 
If you haven't had a chance yet, please do consider leaving it. Like I said, it is a huge way that we can build our show, build our listenership, and we will right, sorry, and we might read part of your review on the air. And as always, we want to shout out our social media fans and family, including the following DL Chandler, the shelter some love on Twitter, Peter McLennan, Hadi Kadar. Kevin Smokler. We also want to shout out Jason P. Woodbury, Dad Bod Rap Podcast. Thank you so much. We also want to thank Marcus Moore. We do so appreciate the tweezies and the retweezies. Oh, good to see you again, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. And now, a teaser from next week's episode where I sit down with Illa J to discuss Prince's Dirty Mind. You know, this is more of a album you listen to straight through i don't i don't think dirty mind you don't go to you don't just go and listen to dirty mind you have to listen to this album straight through because it's sequenced perfectly and then like even the titles i don't know it's like that's that's a part of it too like i feel like titles is just as important as the the song because like someone will look at the album and they they make a judgment before they even listen to it because they just look at the track list and like ah you know but it's just straightforward dirty mind when you were mine do it all night Uptown head, like what? It's like this is very straightforward. <laughs> MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.